Investable Universe is about thematic topics in real assets investing. This is what we mean by the global market of things, real estate, infrastructure, land, energy, and other commodities that have historically been viewed as boring old income investments. But take a look at the shifts underway in these asset classes, from industry disruptors to new investors to emerging markets to geopolitics, and you'll find these assets are anything but dull. We'll talk about private equity, venture capital, corporate VC, sovereign wealth funds, listed markets, crazy startups, some old guard investment firms, some maverick entrepreneurs, and some paradigm-changing technologies. One thing is certain, no corner of the global market of things will be left untouched by the changes happening right now, and that's what we'll be talking about on this podcast. It's all part of our expanding investable universe, and maybe it'll be part of yours too. Iceland represents a business-friendly investment environment with companies migrating to the country due to its strong economic and government support, impressive academic network, advanced infrastructure, and robust natural energy resources. On the backdrop of the COVID-19 pandemic, Iceland's attractiveness as an investment opportunity is stronger than ever. Promote Iceland and the Consulate of Iceland in New York are hosting a virtual event designed to showcase the investment opportunities of Iceland and business ecosystem in greater detail. As the exclusive media partner for the event, Investable Universe had the chance to talk to some of the distinguished presenters who will be speaking during the event. For our latest podcast, I am very honored to be joined by Iceland's Minister for Foreign Affairs and International Development Cooperation, Gudlaugur Tortorsson. Minister Tortorsson, who has held his current government post since 2017, previously served as Minister of Health and Social Security from 2007 to 2009. He was formerly chairman of Iceland's Independence Party Parliamentary Group and has served in Iceland's parliament, the Althingi, as a representative of Reykjavik's northern and southern constituencies and as a member of the Committees for Foreign Affairs, Economic Affairs, Trade, Health, Environment, and Budget. Mr. Foreign Minister, thank you for speaking with me today. No, thank you. Now, earlier this year, you addressed the UN General Assembly remotely and remarked on the parallels of the COVID-19 crisis with the aftermath of World War II when the UN was created. And you pointed very articulately, I might add, to the UN precedent of nations working cooperatively to emerge stronger from a crisis situation. Uh, maybe can we set the stage a little bit and talk to our listeners about how Iceland is currently contributing to the global recovery effort from COVID? Well, first of all, uh, I think this is a perfect example of how we need to work together. It makes no difference, even though part of the world will be very successful and uh, will, let's say, that they would uh, fight it in a way that the pandemic would not be a problem in some part of the world. Mm -hmm. it, it would still be a problem for the ones who have cleared it, so to say. Mm -hmm. And that's the way we have approached it. And uh, what we have uh, done, we are taking a part of, of uh, humanitarian cooperation when it comes to in, in multilateral level, uh, UN and, and in other forums. Same when it comes to uh, the vaccine that we are contributing because we know it needs to go everywhere. It doesn't need only to be in, in Iceland, even though, of course, we try to protect our people. And, of course, we are looking for the future. There will be uh, times after COVID. Mm -hmm. And it's really important that we uh, we have emphasized with our Nordic friends and uh, and other countries, especially Nordic, to, be, uh, to do what we call build back better and greener. But at the same time, we, we, we are totally aware, and, and that's just the fact, unfortunately, mm -hmm. that this is acute crisis. What we are seeing now, that people are going, and we haven't seen it for a long time. We, yeah. we, we might forget it. They're going down. When, and going under poverty lines, so to say. We yeah. want to see people hungry. We yeah. want to see serious crisis. Mm -hmm. And we need to address that. 
-hmm. So at the same time, we are doing everything we can, fighting it in our own country, and then we are using the UN organizations and all the multilateral organizations mm -hmm. to work with them, to do what we contribute, to do what we can, uh, to, to build for the future, to address this acute uh, crisis. And we are totally aware that we need to do this with others. We can't do it alone. Sure. Now, you mentioned Build Back Better and Build Back Greener. Many people have talked about the post-COVID recovery period, whenever, hopefully that will be soon, <laughs> sooner rather than later, as a great reset, and that this is an opportunity to make sweeping or maybe more radical or fundamental changes, specifically in the area of environmental uh, sustainability. So what does that entail? From Iceland's perspective, how do you see a greener, better recovery? And you know, what perspective or, or specific expertise does Iceland bring to bear here? Regardless of COVID, then we would have need to take on that task. Sure. Uh, and uh, maybe it's uh, maybe we'll look back and see that it was the opportunity in this crisis we used. Hopefully, we will be there. Mm -hmm. uh, but then again, was it crisis, and uh, we have, uh, have have discussed that. Iceland has a story to tell. Mm -hmm. uh, we have taken a giant steps towards a greener economy. And we didn't do that, you know, the last few years. It's a hundred years old story. And what we did, well, actually we were looking at the environment, but also we were just broke. And we didn't have that much uh, foreign currency, to be honest. And uh, so we used things that is not, uh, can only be used by Iceland. It can used be everywhere around the world. Mm -hmm. And what I'm talking about, I'm gonna talk about geothermal heating. If everyone would use the opportunities there is for geothermal heating, yeah. then the climate problem would be out of the way. And uh, we did this in the 30s and the 40s. Mm -hmm. So if you come to Iceland, then you will see that when it comes to all the electricity, all the heating of the houses is 100% uh, renewable. Uh -huh. And this is something we are trying to, uh, we're trying to tell this story and we are helping others and for example, we used to have the largest geothermal heating in, in the world in Iceland. It's yeah. now in China. And yeah. what it means is that in, uh, the, the city in, in, in China went from, uh, which were uh, run the heating with coals, and uh, now it's with the geothermal heating. Mm -hmm. And the emission, just from the, uh, this city, of course, it's a very big city, mm -hmm. at least come to uh, Iceland, saved as much emission as the total emission of Iceland each year. Wow. And you would think that uh, this can only be done in Iceland because it's a volcanic, volcanic island and the most active volcanic island in, in the world. But it's not. You do not always need uh, so much uh, heat as you have here. So uh -huh. Far from it. Okay. So uh, this is one of the things that we can't share on. And this is a pure example. This is an Icelandic firm who is working with uh, the Chinese firm uh, in China, but we're also working in, in Africa, all places, Europe, okay. and hopefully we will, we will see this uh, spread. But then, of course, we have uh, hydro when it comes to making uh, electricity. Uh -huh. uh, another thing, which is uh, a story which needs to be told, in my view, Right. And it has partly to do with emission, but uh, the most important is the sustainability when it yeah. comes to our nature, and that's when it comes to fisheries. I mean, Iceland is all about sustainability. Yeah. We need to be sustainable. We are a fishing nation, so we are, we are an, an island, mm -hmm. and if we are not sustainable when it comes to our natural resources, then it will be very tough to, to uh, live in, in Iceland. 
Yeah. Tell a little story because we, it's not always been a success. We have done a lot of faults and a lot of mistakes. And it's important that, uh, that people learn from uh, others' mistakes. When we, for example, our economic zone, uh, were 200 miles, it, it was a huge victory for Iceland and the economy and so on. Mm-hmm. Then, uh, every, first of all, it was not sustainable fishing. Second of all, uh, the companies who were in the fishing industry, they lost a lot of money, and the taxpayer, they had to pay some way or another. Mm-hmm. But we have now a quota system uh, which is based on uh, scientific uh, research and the decision is always made by the minister, but it's always and it's been done about for decades. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, uh, every fishing minister makes no difference in which party he is in. He makes uh, the decision based on the suggestion for the Marine Research Institute. Okay. Uh, it's a non-political institute that makes sustainability guidelines for commercial fishing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, also, what is... Uh, happening is that uh, we used to in my and it's not alone i don't know if i look old or, or, or young but uh, in my childhood then it was all about the fish spelling okay. and it was about uh, catching as much fish as quickly as possible i'm not saying the filling is uh, a byproduct now mm-hmm. but we have gone from only using the fish filling into total utilization of the fish total utilization of the fish okay yeah. It means that, for, for example, that uh, the fish skins are used for healing burning wounds. Uh, That's right. One of your startups, one of your key startups. Uses exactly. It. What used to be uh, pollution, like uh, the shells of the, of the ships, mm-hmm. which is poured into uh, the harbors and the, the total nuisance and, and the pollution, mm-hmm. it's now used for uh, making uh, pharmaceuticals and food supplements and the same with the bones and, and uh, all the part of the fish. And uh, I'm not talking down fishing, it's a very important thing. Yeah, sure. But you go to it, it's, it's also a high-tech in- industry. Yeah. And uh, the R&D is definitely a driving factor. So this is something that uh, we have realized and realized a long time ago that we have uh, been quite successful yeah. on. And there's enormous opportunities yeah. all around the world uh, when it comes to this. And it's actually shocking. When you look at the numbers, how both when it comes to managing the marines and, and, and the fishing sector in, in general, mm-hmm. and but also is that we are we are not utilizing uh, this natural resource like we, we should do. Right. So I, I have a couple of follow-up questions in that regard. So commercial fishing is a major employer in Iceland. So I just wonder if you have any uh, insight about how you balance the needs of the industry from an economic standpoint and from the standpoint of protecting jobs or even creating jobs with sustain. Do you see any tension between those two objectives, being as sustainable as possible and protecting or creating as many jobs for Icelandic citizens as possible? No, not, no, not really. What has happened in the last few decades, I mean, uh, in the 70s, and probably 20 or 30% of the workforce was working for the, in the fisheries and, and agriculture. We have about 4% of it now. Is it a bad thing? No, it's not a bad thing. It means that you have other jobs. And I think, uh, of course, people are different, and I, I respect everything that one, people want to do, but I think that, at least for the young people, it's more attractive uh, working on... Uh, R&D when it comes to uh, utilizing and uh, getting more, uh, could say, valuable products from mm-hmm. the fish than uh, the these traditional jobs, mm-hmm. which are more or less uh, no longer there. Yeah. And, uh, of course, 
for the byproduct of this also that we of course we are very small as you know but we do have the relatively big companies which are international co companies well, what have they done they have used in this knowledge and uh, the experience of the fishing sector for example making machines which they are now uh, selling all around the world mm -hmm. and that of course is endless opportunities mm -hmm. so uh, we are very well educated population and especially when it comes to the younger ones, the younger generations, mm -hmm. and they are so far using these opportunities which arise based on the natural resources, based on history, based on tradition, mm -hmm. but uh, taking to another levels. And just to sort of follow on from that, have you had to introduce any specific policies as your economy has made this transition from maybe more traditional uh, ways of employment, traditional industries like commercial fishing into more technology focused sectors that maybe focus on, you know, different, uh, you know, different uh, technology informed use cases for the fish? Have you had to take policy action to prevent people from being left behind in the economy? Because that's certainly been an issue, for example, in the United States. You know, a shift to, you know, startup technology on the coast, Silicon Valley, that leaves a ton of Americans behind. And that can become a very politicized issue because people are affected differently, even though the technology is great and progress is fantastic and this is a new economy, people get left behind. Has that happened in Iceland? And if not, how have you managed to avoid that scenario? Well, this is always a challenge. I mean, changes are challenges, and changes are so they are so quick. And you just see your kids, and the same all around the world. So, I mean, you try to uh, play video games with your kids, you will lose very quickly because they are so much faster and quicker. And that's just one example. It's a real example. Uh, at the same time, policy, yes, of course, it came from a crisis. We yeah. were overfishing. We were losing a lot of money. So we needed to change. It was, uh, was it painful? Yes, it was at, at the time. But at the same time, we have sustainability when it comes to it. We are the only nation in the OECD who get net taxes from fisheries. But what we are trying to do, and I think that compared to others, we have been quite successful because we emphasize a lot on education. We yeah. emphasize a lot on R&D. You could say the state, or, or that's definitely the policy, is that to support it as much as, as we can. Mm -hmm. I, I get a feeling, I mean, I know what you're addressing, and it's a challenge, no yeah. doubt about that. Mm -hmm. But uh, take the decision to try to have, keep things like they've always been. Mm -hmm. That's a dead end. Yeah. But you need to, call, you, you need to uh, if people, if you see uh, big shifts and big changes when it comes to uh, traditional uh, industries, then I think the solution is always trying to... Uh, teach people or, or educate them to do, uh, do other things. I think it's a lesser problem than in, in many of the other countries, and I hope it's because it's a quite well educated, uh, educated, and also that you have still, which is really important, that that's no policy, that's still in our DNA, and hopefully it will be there, that people are quite good and trying to, uh, could say, save themselves. And for example, when we have the financial crisis, which was really severe, and hit us very hard, mm -hmm. then certainly all kinds of people who have done different things, when the opportunities arose when it comes to tourism, mm -hmm. then you saw people who had been doing other things for decades were suddenly uh, expert when it comes to tourism. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, that's hit, been hit hard now, so we see <laughs> the next steps. But uh, so far, the Icelanders, they, they are hardworking and, and uh, try to do everything to make a life for themselves. 
So uh, just to circle back to the story Iceland has to share with the world on geothermal energy and renewable energies, are there uh, any new and investable technologies that Iceland is currently exporting in that regard that you can share with us? Or any any particular promising technologies where uh, Iceland is looking for maybe international partners to make it? And uh, I mean, you mentioned geothermal. We are seeing now, uh, and I'm trying to put it in a way that people, uh, not the technical way, yeah. simply that we are taking CO2 and, and other things and we are pulling it and making it a rock. Okay, yeah. We are, we are just uh, pulling it down to the earth with a certain technology and it will be a rock. So it, it's, we are not storing it so it can let, be let out in, in uh, one day or something. It, it's turning it into, into rocks. And we are also making... Uh, have opportunities when it comes to uh, making hydrogen and uh, other things. When it comes to energy, mm-hmm. and we do not have this, what we maybe people usually think about when they think about energy as a fossil fuel, we do not have that. Mm-hmm. We have a, a geothermal, mm-hmm. we, we do have a hydro, and uh, when it comes to, for example, making uh, food out of uh, with renewable energy, it's endless opportunities. Of course, we are made for data centers. Yeah, I mean, okay. sometimes it's yeah, I mean, sometime it good to be cold. We are cold Iceland for a reason. You have. How many data centers does Iceland currently have? Uh, not enough. I, I, don't, I don't have the numbers, but you know, yeah. when you have the renewable energy, yeah. you have educated workforce, and then you have the cold. Yeah. So you don't need as much energy because uh, it's uh, quite a lot about uh, uh, keeping it uh, or cooling it down. And you have submarine cables, right? You have submarine cables, which is important for oh, yes. technology um, development. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have connections. And actually, we're going to make the connections better now. We have just made a decision. So in, in a couple of years, we will uh, see even more and safer and secure connections. So this is one of the opportunities. But when it comes to energy, when you think about the R&D and uh, the opportunities, the, the opportunities are endless. We have uh, so far made uh, processes in, in, in many ways, and it's all built on uh, old tradition and uh, knowledge which we have been using. And the reason we are good, it's not like we are some kind of superhumans. Mm-hmm. We have been the only one who has been doing this. Uh-huh. And uh, we are doing this for 100 years. Yeah. So for a long time, we didn't even uh, think about uh, what we're doing. We didn't, we didn't partner them or anything like, like that. But uh, which, which unfortunately, that's a, that's a different story. But uh, when it comes to opportunities or investments, corporations, in this very important field, which is energy, mm-hmm. the opportunities are endless in Iceland. The same goes with fisheries. If you just look at uh, what we have been doing, then uh, I can assure you to cooperate with Icelandic companies in that field is, is a great opportunity. So Iceland is a seafaring nation. It's a country that depends very heavily on its maritime exposure for its economic growth. And now when we talk about the legal framework for sort of operating in that kind of environment, we get into the realm of the international law of the sea and of maritime law. Now, what role does Iceland play in safeguarding or otherwise defending that legal framework? And what challenges do you see possibly emerging in the coming years? Well, there's a lot of chance. We, lead, uh, we look at ourselves as a guardian of the sea. We know the importance of uh, that sea, the sea is unpolluted. We see the importance of uh, sustainable use because it's very, it's very easy and it's done every day 
mm-hmm. that you are uh, overfishing and uh, you're not using in a sustainable way. And sometimes you can never go back. Mm-hmm. So everywhere, we just look at it. I'm talking about where we started, the importance of uh, we working together as a people on this planet, then it's definitely when it comes to the sea. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, the biggest part of the planet is, is not land, it's actually sea. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have sometimes used it that is, we can pull everything into it and there will be no effects. It's far from it. Mm-hmm. So uh, the UNCLOS the is essential, but we face a lot of challenges. We are going to see stocks move because of the climate change. Mm-hmm. We also see with uh, new technologies that we can harness it uh, in more places that we do now. And if we do not do it in a proper way, we will see very harsh uh, results, which will affect all of us. So if you talk to an Iceland or Iceland politician about the sea, he can never stop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, we, we talked a little about uh, natural energy um, and a sort of an auxiliary topic in that regard is energy infrastructure. And I just uh, have a question about sustainable energy infrastructure investment. Does Iceland offer public-private partnerships in facilitating this kind of investment? And if not, do you plan to in the coming years? It's very simple. The things that we have done so far mm-hmm. is not done either only with private companies or with the state or public companies. You have to do this together. Yeah. If you're going to exploit and use these opportunities, then uh, it has to be done in some combination. Mm-hmm. So it's very important that what we try to do is have some kind of framework. But uh, in most cases, I think in all cases, let's say just hydrogen which is a very uh, exciting yeah, uh, a lot of hype around. idea. Yeah, it, it is. A lot. And uh, what I mentioned when it comes to uh, getting the carbon dioxide or CO2, making it into uh, minerals and so on, we need to do it in a, a combination. And we need, to be, we need to work together on that. And uh, then I mean the public and, and uh, the private companies. And because you asked about uh, the exploitation of uh, how we're going to use our energy mm-hmm. uh, further is need to be done yeah. in cooperation. And I think that everywhere we you see good results in that area or the wells, then uh, you need to do it in, in, in cooperation. And not only in cooperation between public and private in Iceland, mm-hmm. we are really interested in doing with other countries also mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. Because what, what we can do here can be, uh, and which is successful, can be done in other countries also. Excellent. So I would say the Nordic region, I think it's fair to say the Nordic region and Iceland in particular uh, is known for its uh, commitment to gender equality across all segments of society. And I think one of the unfortunate side effects of COVID-19 in many countries has been disproportionate economic impact of the pandemic on women. Uh, here in the U.S., they're calling it a her session. We have <laughs> it's the recession that is hitting women hard. <laughs> so has Iceland experienced anything similar? And if not, why not? What expertise does Iceland have to share in, uh, in ensuring that women continue to participate in economic and business life? Well, I hope, I hope that we are not seeing it. Uh, I, mean, but we are, I mean, when you're closing those down societies, you have a lot of side effects, which is not very pleasant. Yeah, and uh, I mean, we we have seen uh, more, uh, could say, uh, domestic violence and also more stress on on uh, institutions who are dealing yeah. with those things. And women are very vulnerable when it comes to a situation like this. I hope, though, that uh, we are seeing now the future, both the generation now and the future generations in Iceland has mm-hmm. got gender equality in the DNA. 
there's a lot of uh, been a lot of changes in the last few decades. I mean, can tell you tell you one story. Okay. Uh, in 1980, we elected a new president. Mm-hmm. We it was not only the first woman was elected the president in a democratic country, but she was also a single mother. That was uh, for some a really worrisome thing. She was an excellent president, and uh, so that's out of the question. No one discussed it anymore that uh, women could be president or, yeah. or prime ministers or mayors or whatever. Actually, we had had a woman mayor before. But anyway, so in 1986, we had this meeting at Hurley mm-hmm. when uh, Reagan and Gorbachev were there. I remember. Then a lot of young guys had realized that men could also become uh, presidents. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. and it's a true story, actually. And uh, I am hoping that uh, that we are moved in, in that direction, that we cannot be turned around. I, I hope that. I sincerely do. But it's an endless challenge. Yeah. But what, what worries me as a, a, a minister who is responsible for development programs that uh, yeah. we see especially in, in uh, the countries we are, we, are, we are working with, that we see are huge problems uh, when it comes to uh, violence towards women and so on. Uh, that is something that we have in all our, in our foreign policy. Mm-hmm. It makes no difference in development program, trade, uh, defense, security. Uh, yes. Gentility is always a cornerstone of our policy. I and I think it says something. Did Iceland have think- down its public schools during the, during the pandemic at all? And did that have a, a negative impact on women's ability to work outside the home, for example? Well, I think the, the big, we have uh, tried to keep them as open as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the, the the most serious thing when it comes to the schools that uh, we are talking about, the universities and also uh, uh, schools which are for kids about the age uh, 15 to 20, that uh, they are suffering because they cannot go to school. And uh, I think that w- it will be a cost. But we have tried everything, and there's a clear will of the government, and I think uh, I'm back up by the public to keep the school as open, uh, as long open as, as possible. That is something that uh, is extremely, extremely important. Just to, to be discussing the gender equality, yeah. we have no politicians, we have no political organization who wants to go back. Okay. And I, I, because of a reason, gender equality is a win-win. And it's even, if you only think about the economy, if you look at the countries, then the, the economic growth is higher if you have more gender equality. Mm-hmm. And it's obvious, I mean, if you just think about it, if you want to keep half of the population outside uh, the economy, it makes no sense. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it makes no sense. I agree. Okay, so just to circle back to, uh, you know, we, had, we talked a little bit, we referenced this a little bit when we were talking about um, maritime law and Iceland's uh, view toward the law of the sea. Iceland is currently chairing the Arctic Council, and that's a region that is increasingly assuming geopolitical strategic importance, especially post-climate change. You know, pro- there's a lot of speculation that, that the Arctic region is going to be opening up more, and that's going to be contested by multiple large countries. Uh, can you discuss Icelandic policy initiatives on the council? And and what challenges, whether these are investment challenges or simply geopolitical challenges or opportunities may arise? And in what kind of time frame are we talking about? Well, first of all, when it comes to our policy, when it comes to the Arctic and chairing the Arctic Council. First of all, we, uh, the Arctic has so far been a low tension area and we want to keep it that way. Okay. But then again, sustainability is the key. Mm-hmm. 
it's not only sustainability when it comes to the environment or the nature, it mm-hmm. also comes to with a, a social, social uh, sustainability mm-hmm. and economic sustainability. We have 4 million people living in the Arctic in this huge area. Mm-hmm. And it's very important that no uh, action or decision are taken without their support or, or that they, they are the ones who should be the ones who are taking the decision. And it's, it's really, really important. But uh, then we have emphasized, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say surprisingly, on the seas. And uh, we'll be also uh, on uh, climate and green energy solutions. And uh, as I mentioned, people and the communities in, in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. Things are happening very quickly in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though Arctic is far away from uh, many places in the world, then uh, the Arctic is the opposite of uh, Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. Everything that happens in the Arctic will affect and everyone will know it. Sure. I mean, the challenges are definitely there. But at the same time, also, of course, in every crisis, there's also opportunities. Mm-hmm. And what we're going, for example, going to see uh, that we will see uh, the uh, sailing routes will shorten by 40% when the Arctic opens up for sailing between uh, Europe and, and Asia, for example. But it's very important that it's done in a way that's not going to harm the environment, and that's it's a challenge. But also a good thing that we also already made, and we were very active when it comes to that, an agreement, even though not one fish has been uh, fished mm-hmm. in this area, Mm-hmm. There's, been, there's an agreement in place that there will be no fishing without, uh, if it's not based on scientific methods and, and uh, decisions. And that was a, a, a big step, but there's a lot of things that uh, needs to be done. But aware of that, that uh, the Arctic, we have laws. It's, it's, uh, it's non, no part of the Arctic is without jurisdiction. Okay, so it's not, it's not anarchy up there in the, in the Arctic. There is, there's a very clear legislation in place that will affect Russia, China, the United States, all the players with an interest. Yeah, it's, it's UNCLOS, and uh, when it comes to the, the, the sea, and uh, then, of course, uh, the, the, uh, the countries and territories have, their, have of course, uh, their rules. And, but the most important, maybe the challenge thing, that everyone will follow the rules. Okay. If everyone will follow the international rules, which are there, then things will be okay. Yeah. And that's very important that we uh, we also have an international system. And that's why the reason I think it's very important mm-hmm. that we, uh, the ones who are agree on common values, which we based our international multilateral system on, that we uh, try to guard it because we will have problems if that is not the cornerstone of, of international cooperation. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, speaking of strategic relationships, uh, I know you met earlier this fall with uh, outgoing U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Can you share a little about what you discussed and maybe the importance of the U.S.-Icelandic relationship more broadly and how you'd like to see this relationship develop under the next administration? Mike Pompeo was the first uh, Secretary of State for 11 years to visit Iceland. and. Uh, I think it's really important that uh, the ones who come after him that they realize the, uh, how important the close ties between Iceland and the U.S. are. Yeah. One might say you are so few, you do not really matter. That's not the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the same strategic interest and we, our strategic importance is growing. And uh, we, we have talked about the uh, Arctic, for example. It's very important, as I mentioned before, 
that uh, the the nations who share the same values they stick together and uh, they guard these important values. And uh, it will affect the U.S. if uh, you will have some uh, problems in the Arctic and problems in in Iceland. So what we did is that uh, we decided, me and and, uh, Mike Pompeo, on strict relations, especially when it comes to uh, trade and economic cooperation. So we now have in place an economic dialogue, which is, I hopefully will end up as a free trade deal, but we are also... we are uh, challenging and, and uh, tackling the uh, uh, regulation and all the things that hinder uh, more interaction in, in trade between the countries. Of course, the biggest single uh, trading partner of Iceland is the U.S. Really? Even more it's, than that? Yes, it is. Uh, if you took just a single country, but at the same time, we fly, and then I'm talking pre-COVID, yeah. then we fly more often to North America than all the Nordics combined. So, uh, and of course we have the bilateral uh, defense uh, agreement. Yeah. And uh, so it was, a, it was a very good sign, a very important that we have not only have Mike Pompeo, but also uh, Mike Pence came here. He was the first vice president of Beckett. And also we have uh, both people from the Senate and, and the House, which have visited Iceland. Yeah. Uh, and it's really important that there are close political ties between the countries. It's not only important for Iceland, it's also extremely important for the U.S. And the best way to connect is through trade. Trade is not only just exchanging goods and services for money. It's, it means that people get to know each other, understand each other, and uh, there are endless opportunities or openness if that happen. And uh, it's important also, and this is all, it's all connected, that now, now we have for the first time, or first, yeah, of course first time, but we are fighting for, for decades, we have the so-called Icelandic bill in place, which has been put forward in, in the House. And uh, it means that uh, it's an E1, E2 visas, which means that uh, it's a better access for Icelandic investors and businessmen to work in the U.S., and uh, of course, we have endless opportunities because uh, we have now same routes between Iceland, Greenland, and Maine. And Maine is uh, a big port. We are we actually big in Maine, uh, Icelanders, believe it or not. The people in Maine and other parts of, of the U.S. see these opportunities because of the rising opportunities of the Arctic, of this connection between Iceland, Greenland, and the U.S. And uh, I sincerely hope, and I'm, I'm sure that the new administration will... Uh, have the same policy when it comes to comes to Iceland and this region. Is it fair to say that the fact that Iceland doesn't belong to the European Union but instead has is politically neutral and has these bilateral relationships has enhanced your ability to have a productive and direct dialogue with the United States? Is that definitely okay? And uh, and we are of course we are where we are. We're in the middle of the Atlantic. And we are important, both Europeans and the U.S. There's a reason that the first involvement in the Second World War on the U.S. side, those six months pre uh, Pearl Harbor, was in Iceland. Mm-hmm. That they took over from the, uh, from the Brits mm-hmm. uh, in, in uh, I think it's June in, in 1941. And we have access, we are a hub in the middle of the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And we have access to 500 million market in, in uh, the European market. And at the same time, we have uh, free trade deals with 74 countries because we have our own trade uh, policy and in uh, working in, in, in EFTA. And we, of course, have closer ties with North America, uh, both historically and also economically and also on the defense and security mm-hmm. than the most other countries in Europe. 
And what we have for doing, for example, we have been increasing opportunities for US people to work in Iceland. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's easier for those people, for example, especially specialists who want to work, who can work outside home, we have done things so it's easier for them to, to uh, work in Iceland. And uh, there's a lot of tourists who come from uh, the US to Iceland. So uh, we have something to offer that uh, the citizen of the US likes. So one final question for you, Mr. Minister, which is that you sort of evoked the uh, dark days of World War II and the post-war history. Uh, and I just want to say, you know, in closing, that we're, we're at a strange moment uh, historically speaking, I think it's probably aggravated by COVID-19, but a lot of these dynamics were well underway uh, before this uh, tragic uh, pandemic took hold. Uh, there's, there's distrust and maybe there's a fear of, of economic decoupling between regions of the world. I'm thinking specifically of the U.S. and China, but, you know, it's flared up in other places as well. And there's a strong impulse in some countries toward uh, protectionism. So Iceland, as you've mentioned throughout our, our conversation, Iceland has a lot to teach the world about depending on other countries for trade relationships while also protecting your own independence, even if you're, you know, as a geographically small and somewhat isolated uh, country. Do you have any words of guidance for the world as we head into 2021 about diffusing these kind of tensions or what's a productive way to move forward where you engage with the world, but don't let it overwhelm you? Well, first of all, when it comes to free trade, and Adam Smith was right. Mm -hmm. That was in the... Uh, in the, in the 1770 something, you know, uh, the wealth of, wealth of nation. I mean, he was just right. I mean, we we never get anywhere with protectionism. It's just as simple as that. Mm. And we, of course, are a clear example of the importance of free trade. Uh, we were one of the poorest countries uh, more than 100 years ago, and we would still be poor if we wouldn't have access to other markets. Mm. And our market wouldn't be open, because that's ex also extremely important. But also, we need to bear in mind that we need to cooperate. But at the same time, I think when historians look at uh, the area we live in now, they are not looking at to uh, pre and, and uh, post COVID because of these uh, things that you're mentioning. I think they are looking at as a, a struggle between ideas. We have built up the multilateralism, we built up the international cooperation on values, which we do take for granted. We take for granted human rights, we take for granted the rule of law. And uh, we take for granted democracy. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is not, we are just a small part of uh, the, the planet mm -hmm. who enjoys these rights. And uh, it's really important that uh, we should cooperate and uh, that's essential. But mm -hmm. we sh should never lose focus and we want to build the world on these values. So it's important to stand firm grounds on that. Mm -hmm. I don't want my kids or my grandchildren to live in a different world when it comes to uh, though these extremely important mm -hmm. things. And do you think those values are, are under assault or under threat as we head into 2021? Are you optimistic about these values remaining intact, not just for Iceland, but maybe among uh, friends worldwide? They are under threats, no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but uh, of course I'm optimistic, I, I've always been optimistic, but I think it's really important that we do not get complacent. And it's really important that the ones, and I stress it once again, who uh, share these values, they stick together, they work together, and we stand firm on these values. Mm -hmm. 
Excellent. Well, it, it underscores the importance of alliances, that's for sure. And that's <laughs> hopefully we will we will see a, a new era of people showing appreciation to their allies <laughs> heading into 2021. Uh, Foreign Minister Gudlor Tortorderson, thank you for speaking with Investable Universe today. Thank you. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. That's all we got for Investable Universe this week. If you liked what you heard, share the link, check out the site at investableuniverse.com or pitch us for future episodes. The address is editor at investableuniverse.com. My name is Rebecca Darst and you'll hear more from me next time.